This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. As we hit the one-year mark of the pandemic, we're seeing definite signs of progress. Vaccines are rolling out faster and faster, and with each dose, we have renewed hope for a return to normalcy and the chance to break away from isolation in favor of interaction and human touch. But we are far from out of the woods. Herd immunity is still months away, even if everything goes well. And with states like Texas deciding to open up completely without any restrictions, the threat of new surges in COVID cases and the threat of new variants emerging is very real. For those who have been on the front lines, the exhaustion and emotional toll of the last year are hard to quantify. Even as we see a glimpse of light at the end of the tunnel, they must remain focused on each day, each patient, each family that's touched by this virus. The relief that they feel as more vaccines are administered is tempered by their knowledge that so many patients have been lost. The mental health toll on those who have been in the middle of this fight will leave scars that may never completely heal. Dr. Tan Neville is a physician and researcher at UCLA Health, where she works in the medical intensive care unit. She's also the medical director of UCLA Health's Three Wishes program, which works to implement the final wishes for patients who are dying. Dr. Neville has been at the forefront of this fight from the very beginning, and I'm pleased to welcome her here today to talk about her experience. Dr. Neville, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. So my first question is sort of a basic one, but I'd like to take you back to the beginning of this pandemic, if we can remember back that far. Was there a moment in time when all of a sudden you realized that this pandemic was going to change your life in a significant way? I was actually the ICU attending during the week that the um, WHO designated the COVID infection as a pandemic. So I was in intensive care unit at that time. And it was one of the most, I would say, nerve-wracking time of such uncertainty of what is coming to our way. And anxiety was running really, really high in the intensive care unit. And I think all of my colleagues realized at that time that, you know, we were going to be front and center in this pandemic and it was going to be scary. There was just so much uncertainty involved that it just caused a lot of anxiety in that during that entire time. And um, so many guidelines were changing as well. Um, So I would say that first week was one of the most challenging, even though the number of COVID patients were nowhere where it eventually became. It's interesting because, you know, we've had threats of pandemics in the past and, you know, H1N1 and there was the Ebola threat for a while. And I think at the beginning, the average person was thinking, oh, I've heard this song before, but there was something different about this one. And did did you pick that up right away? I'm going to totally admit to you that the answer is no. I mean, I think that in the very beginning, when people were started to talk about it and about how the infection was starting in China and how many uh, people were beginning to stock up on toilet paper, stock up on groceries, I was not prepared for what was coming. I did not think that it was going to be that bad. At first, before it was declared a pandemic, me and many of my colleagues were were also thinking that this might be no um, worse than the flu. And as time went on, that rapidly changed. And I can even tell you, you know, I was part of the Ebola response team. So I kind of knew what that was like. And I always remember I was on the Ebola 
what we call pager call, you know, where there was anybody who had a slightest like inkling that they might have contracted the virus coming off the plane from LAX. And every time my pager would go off, it was really, really scary. Just the fact that I was like, oh my God, I might not be coming home today to my husband because I might be exposed. And I can tell you at the early part of the COVID pandemic, we did not realize that what was coming is what we saw. Do you remember the first time that you actually knowingly encountered a COVID patient? I remember as if it was yesterday. Um, Because I was the first ICU attending on during the um, pandemic, I encountered the first ICU patient in our hospital at UCLA. Coincidentally, she was Vietnamese and Vietnamese. It was almost surreal because it was also during a time when we didn't know what was the best guidelines for management of COVID-19 respiratory failure. The guideline times at that time was really talking about, you know, how these patients crash and crash fast and you need to intubate them as soon as they have more than six liters of nasal cannula oxygen requirement. You don't want to delay intubation because PPE is going to take a while to put on and crash intubation will only put you and your entire team and the patient at higher risk. So I remember making the call to intubate that first patient and it was a call that was not easy to make because this is a patient that normally would not have been intubated any under other circumstances because she was breathing okay, but her oxygen requirement was just a little bit too high for comfort. And she was terrified. And a lot of times, you know, in these situations of intubating a patient with respiratory failure, they aren't able to interact with you. They might be in a lot of distress. And I can tell you with this first patient, that was not the case. And because of that, I think I will always remember it. And I will always remember the team of nurses and respiratory therapists who were also at my side during that moment. I remember her clutching my hand and, you know, telling me how scared she was. And I told her everything is going to be okay and that I got you, you know, um, I will take care of you. But in the back of my mind, I really had no idea and no way to promise that things were going to be okay. And in many ways, that was terrifying. And it sounds like that really was the beginning of a long and emotional journey that continues to this day. So working in an ICU, obviously you are exposed to death on a regular basis. But what's different about COVID than the type of illness and and the experience you have with death normally on the job? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so death in the intensive care unit is not abnormal. You know, for patients in our ICU, the average mortality is probably about 20%. And as a person who takes care of the sickest of the sick, you expect that some of your patients are not going to be able to make it. And the reason why I feel like COVID-19 is so different is that I feel like most of these deaths are potentially unnecessary and a lot of times just feels so profoundly unfair. I feel like nobody really deserves, quote unquote, to die from COVID. And I mean, there's all this talk in media that these are the patients with underlying um, chronic medical illnesses or these are the patients who are really old already. But nobody is really waiting to get infected from COVID and dying that way. The death is usually fast and the treatments are not that great. 
And I have to also say that it's a virus that I feel like it does discriminate. You know, people say everybody's equal on the playing field of getting infected and getting disease. But that's quite, not quite true with COVID. I mean, it really discriminates against patients who don't have the capacity to socially distance, you know, or they can't work from home or they live in crowded areas and there's no way that they can avoid being co- coming into contact with somebody else. And it discriminates against those people who have, you know, fought really hard to try to get better from their underlying illnesses and, that they're, and therefore have vulnerable health conditions that then the virus takes advantage of. You mentioned something about even feeling bad after questioning you know, a family about have they been social distancing without recognizing that a lot of times people live in the same room and that, you know, social distancing is a privilege that not everybody can share. That has to be something that kind of washed over you as you saw these cases and the humanity in front of you. Absolutely. I mean, the family that you're mentioning had five adult people living in a one bedroom apartment in South LA. When I talked to the daughter and ask her, you know, um, were you guys trying to social distance? And she started to cry. And that's when I realized, you know, I, it was actually kind of inconsiderate and insensitive of me to like think that everybody can do that. And like you said, social distancing is a privilege. I mean, their mechanism of trying to isolate from each other was wearing a face mask while they slept right next to each other in adjacent mattresses keeping a window open at night in the cold so that air can circulate a little better during the, in their apartment. And I mean, I think once a virus enters a home like that, it's inevitable that every single one of them is going to be infected and the oldest and the sickest can potentially die from it. As COVID progressed, I think there were a couple of times where we thought, oh, it's peaking. And then all of a sudden we got a real feel for what these surges are like. And California, unfortunately, had a, a major surge what was it like for you? Because by then you had some semblance of understanding of what COVID was like, how patients present, and maybe how they progress to some extent. Can you describe what life was like during the surge, though? Yeah, it's difficult. It was actually really interesting because right in, I think that was December when we our case numbers started to really come up. And I was on service as the ICU attending at the same time as the infectious disease attending who was on service with me when the first COVID patient rolled in. And we looked at each other and he said, Tan, this feels like Groundhog Day. I was like, no, this is way worse. And what it felt was that then there was fear. And now there was this awful sense of dread and it was challenging in that the volume of patients were so much higher. And I can tell you that it was frustrating because you also, as a healthcare worker, realize, you know, this is because a lot of public health uh, messages were not taken seriously over the holidays. And the surge was coming because people didn't socially distance because people didn't wear a mask. And some of it probably could have been prevented and things did not have to be that bad. But working in the ICU during that time felt like we were just constantly putting out fires and more and more patients just kept coming. You talked about the mission statement that even if people die, you helped them. That's got to be a tough mission to focus on, especially during a surge. How do you remind yourself that you really are making a difference for every patient that you come across? 
yeah, I have to say, I mean, I truly and honestly admit that that was a mission statement that was really hard to uphold as the pandemic goes on. I actually am the director of something called the Three Wishes Program at UCLA, which is where clinicians implement final wishes for patients and their families at their end of life. So pre-COVID, for example, if a dying patient is a Latina and loves mariachi music, we've brought in a mariachi band to play. We've orchestrated weddings um, for patients who were engaged and unfortunately reaching the end of their illness. And all those things are really not possible during the COVID pandemic. So it was much harder to be able to help patients and their families in these moments, especially when families oftentimes were not even allowed at the bedside. And I would say that we had to be creative. And I think that one of the things that I learned during this pandemic is that small things really, really matter to families who have so little to hang on to during these times when they lose somebody in the hospital. So for instance, what we did during this entire year was we created keepsakes for families, you know? So if a patient uh, who died from COVID, we might create and you know, frame their EKG in a frame and give it to the family. Um, we've obtained fingerprints from the patients and I actually developed a UV irradiation protocol to, so that, that we can UV irradiate these fingerprints and put it in keychains to like deliver it to the family afterwards. You know, and I can tell you, you know, if I have, um, I want to say a habit, but I tried to call all the families whose loved one died under my care to offer my condolences if I'm not on service at the time that they pass away. And they often tell me how much it means to them to have something to hold on to. That's certainly not of any crazy value or anything, but a fingerprint, an EKG, or anything that represents their loved one is really truly valued. I think in that way, that is how I have tried to like continue to help families and patients deal with their loss. And I think their phone call alone, which I've been really surprised to realize how much it means to families to get a phone call from the doctor who was at their loved one's bedside when they couldn't be, that cared deeply for their loved one they when they couldn't, that held their loved one's hand when they couldn't be there. It is really surprising for me to realize how much that phone call matters to family members. I've been told that even if that phone call involved crying the entire half hour or whatever that I spoke to them, that this was the best part of their day it shocks me, honestly. And and I'm going to tell you, these phone calls are not pleasant for me. They like I end up most of the time crying myself. So they're really hard. But I just think it's valuable to do when I get feedback like that. I mean, how do I compare my discomfort or pain to their pain of loss of losing their loved one? There has to be an emotional buildup from that and the volume of families that you've had to have conversations with. And sometimes I think about the the long-term effects of this pandemic long past when we are vaccinated and we can sort of go back to normal. There are going to be some tentacles that will reach out to society as a whole, but I think also 
to a lot of caregivers about PTSD related to this pandemic. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, how are you holding up? What keeps you going? And how do you and your colleagues deal with this extra emotional stress that you've been under? I'm going to be very honest and upfront with you. I have not dealt with it as well as I would like. I think that a lot of my colleagues probably are in a similar situation. I think that you have probably heard in the news and all these stories about healthcare worker distress, how there's depression and PTSD. Um, I'm going to tell you a full disclosure that I have always suffered from depression myself. And um, I shouldn't say always. There have been moments that are better than others. And during this pandemic, things have gotten a lot harder. I've doubled my dose of my antidepressant, hoping that it would help. And I get a lot of insomnia. I think that these stories that are so tragic, it's inevitable that they will become part of not only our memories, but our current thoughts for a long time. I think that one of the things that are most that is most important for our um, mental health well-being is the camaraderie uh, amongst healthcare workers. I don't think that I could possibly do what I do, um, experience what I experience without having the doctors and nurses around me who experience the same thing and are able to support each other in these really difficult times. Another interesting and very tragic element of COVID is that it's shining a light on some other sort of underlying issues in our country. And you mentioned one of them earlier is that is healthcare disparities. That and sort of divisiveness and, and how you know masking became political. And it's sort of exposing weaknesses that we have in our, our society in some way. When you see this as somebody who sees the end result of all of this, How does that make you feel? It makes me sad. I think that, you know, something like this could have shined a light on how wonderful humanity is, but it did the reverse. I think in many ways it showed how our health system is broken, how Americans valued themselves above all else, and selfishness is way more prevalent than kindness. And that's really disappointing. I did want to ask a little bit about current state. You know, we have vaccines that are rolling out faster and faster, but there's also this COVID fatigue that is a real problem. And I think people think that the finish line is there and it's not. And, you know, just recently, Texas announced that they're going to open up everything. When you hear things like that, how does that make you feel? What are your, what's your anxiety level when you hear about that? It makes me angry. It makes me angry and frustrated. I really do feel like we are heading towards pretty close to the finish line. And why are we rushing to mess things up right now? I don't think right now is the time to open things up, certainly to full capacity that Texas is. I think the vaccines are very, very promising. I think that it's really great that we have achieved vaccines with such high efficacy levels. But until we can vaccinate, the majority of Americans, not like 10%, we should not be jumping the gun and putting ourselves at risk. I'm very, very concerned 
that in the coming months, you know, there will be more and more variants and we will see another surge because of the variants and because people have dropped their guard way down and way too soon. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I mean, if, if we get more variants and there's another surge, you're going to be right in the middle of this again. That has to be concerning for you. Like you got to gear up and you really have no choice. You, the patients are there and you have no choice but to but to jump into the fray again. But I do have a glimmer of hope that regardless of if there is another surge and infections come back, I don't, I, I there is some hope um, and optimism from my standpoint that it won't be as bad because the, because of the vaccines, that hopefully cases are not as severe and reduced to, to at least some extent. I assume you've had your vaccine. What was it like when you got your vaccine? Relief. Um, glad that science is working um, at a, an extraordinary pace. But I have to say, you know, when I received my vaccine, I also have a sense of guilt that I had this opportunity that many people, A, have not been offered, and B, and all those who passed away before the vaccine came out. I remember when I got the vaccine, the case that kind of flashed through my brain was actually a 30-something-year-old woman who was placed on life support a few days after delivering her child, and she died. And nothing that we do in the future is ever going to change the amount of deaths and the amount of tragedy that this virus had already caused. So I would say the vaccine, getting the vaccine was bittersweet. Extremely thankful, but also a little sad just thinking about what the virus has done. And I'm a big believer in science. I mean, I can tell you even before I got the vaccine, my husband and I both signed up for the AstraZeneca clinical trial. So we were already in a trial trying to, you know, contribute to science in whatever way we can to get us closer to the finish line. So, I mean, I'm a big believer and I do believe that this will come to an end if we, you know, continue our precautions and um, everybody gets vaccinated. Looking ahead, are there lessons that you think you'll take away from this? I know that there's a lot of bad lessons that we've learned. Is there any hope that you think can come from this? Is there a glimmer of hope on the horizon? That's a tough question. It's a tough question because it's such a hard time in my life right now, to be honest. I think that if anything, I really hope that we learn to be kinder to each other. That with the glaring disparities that we realize that, you know, or the isolated, the vulnerable, or a disadvantaged, and we need to work to make things better, to be a more equal America. Maybe when when they show us a mirror to our faces and we don't like what we see. Exactly. Maybe we, maybe we can change. No, exactly. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time and telling me your story. I think it's an important story. I hope that you stay safe and that we can get through this quickly and I just wish you all the luck in the world and all the health and safety uh, in the world as well as we continue to get through this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. 
If you know of someone who might make a good guest on this podcast, please send them to me at brian at truevoicecommunications.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay separate, and wear a mask, and we'll get through this together. Thank <laughs> you.